Happy New Year, everyone. Nearly a month in. So it's the first squiggly animation podcast of 2013. I'm Ben Mitchell, mumbling hermit. Joining me via Skype is Steve Henderson. Hello, Steve. Hello, Ben. And my word, what a start to the new year with a white whale of a lead guest. One of my personal heroes as far as his attitude and outlook goes. And of course, his films are balls-achingly funny, Mr. Bill Plimpton. And we'll also be chatting with Latvian animator Signe Bauman. They're both making feature films, and you can help them out. Not to mention Will Beecher from Ardman. We're starting off the new year strong. Steve, happy 2013. Happy 2013 to you as well, mate. Or 2013. Or... Did you have a good Christmas? Survived, obviously. Yes, I had a lovely Christmas. I, uh, I learned to make mince pies. Although, unfortunately, I ended up making way too many of them, and now I can't see anything below gut level, which is uh, never good if you're a guy, or really just a human being. I've sort of done the opposite to what people do at Christmas. Usually people go Christmas and get fat, and then New Year's, they sort of go on a diet and take up uh, exercise and all that sort of stuff. Um, I was sort of assessing my own life earlier on today and decided that I've done the opposite. January has just become... Let's eat as many crisps as possible. I think that's pretty much what happens with everyone after the first five minutes of the new year. My new year's resolution is to, you know, get fatter, have less sex, fail completely at my career. Because I think that'll be an easier one to stick to. Reach for the stars, Ben. Reach for the stars. Well, there's only so much respite from the drudgery of life and animation and podcasting that we can do. So we're back podcasting again in the new year. It's it's good to be back. I it certainly is. Well, we had a good uh, uh, Christmas season over at squiggly.co.uk. Also now squiggly.com. We've sort of gone up market. Pretty fancy. Yeah, we're using the internet all proper now. It's only legitimate when you completely abandon your nationality and your roots. Yeah. Steve, did you enjoy our Christmas seasonal squiggly goodies like our advent calendar? I did. I really did. Yeah. To everyone involved, thank you very much. But I, it was easily the the best part of the job was every day getting a, a new picture through. I don't know. I mean, I enjoyed it and I was very impressed by all of it. But there's only so much humility one man can take. To be reminded on a daily basis just how many people are out there more talented than myself. <laughs> well, I, I gave up on that sort of thing quite a while ago. I gave into this to this <laughs> to this knowledge that, that there are better people than me out there quite a while ago. I think I was around about two or three. And um, um, <laughs> it's a very advanced way of thinking. I applaud it. <laughs> now we had some fantastic contributors. If anyone doesn't know what the hell we're talking about um, and didn't go on the the website in December. We did a advent calendar thing on the main page where every day we had a different illustrator or animator uh, submit a picture, an illustration, uh, I think in, in one case a little looped animation, which was uh, uh, extra delightful, just to sort of generally celebrate the season and, and show off artwork and show off people's films and reels, people we like, people who uh, we admire, people whose stars perhaps are on the rise. And, uh, you know, we can feel like we got in there early. So, hey, look, look what we've uh, hitched our wagon to. Prophetic, ain't we? I'm not saying that we've got magic powers or anything, but um, some of the people that contributed have since gone on to get BAFTA nominations and um, the Irish Film Television Award nominations. So uh, 
You know, I'm not saying we've got magic powers, Ben. I'm not saying that. No, no, I, the magic power is a, a ridiculous notion. They do, however, owe everything to us now and will throughout the entirety of their career. Yeah. I think it's yeah. a fairer way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Magic powers, Steve. <laughs> Delusional. <laughs> Sorry. We also had the unadvent calendar, which was, I guess, the uh, an excuse to milk a good thing, but it didn't. Uh, it didn't overstay its welcome. It was also very good. It was uh, another showcase and of some of the same people, but uh, a few new faces as well. Just to, I guess, kind of enliven up the old squiggly facade. Yeah. So keep your eyes skinned. Start going back onto the website if you'd abandoned it merely for these oral delights. That's oral a u r a l, because um, it's gonna it's gonna be looking extra pretty in 2013. Yeah, I, I think the the unadvent banners that we did were mainly a response to people saying we want more. So hopefully, you know, 2013 will be more of a showcase, more of a website for you guys to get involved in. So we're looking forward to that next step in uh, the squiggly evolution. What does 2013 have in store? for an unsuspecting public or a suspecting public I don't know, I don't have a magic crystal ball handy well I do, I have a couple of articles penned by your good self that I'm going to be using for reference because I'm a lazy son of a bitch hey, Oscar nominations they just came out that'll fill up some time yeah Thank God that award season falls <laughs> exactly the right time. Steve, do you agree with this year's Oscar picks? Now's our chance to be catty. We can reinvent ourselves. We can be like a sort of Perez Hilton double act of the animation world. <laughs> well, let's have a little look then. The Oscar picks. Should we start with the features? D- d- I, yes. Well, go on then. When I say we start, I mean you start. Actually, nominees for Best Animated Feature, Brave, a Pixar film, going out on a limb there, um, a, a film that I have yet to see, which I probably shouldn't admit. Have I read the trailers right in assuming that the film essentially is about uh, how perseverance of the human spirit can beat any obstacle in your path, even if you're a ginger? That's, yeah, that's pretty much it. Is there anything, other story points I've missed out on, or is it just the the ginger thing? It's about relationship, basically, between mother and daughter. It's a fantastic standout film. If Pixar had done this before Finding Nemo, then maybe we would have it would have been given more of a sort of applause. It's a good Pixar film, but you know when you have a good Pixar film, it, do you know where I'm coming from? I'm saying that it's 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 Pixar's good. Is everyone else's fantastic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know what I'm saying. Well, I think a, a good way to like sum it all up would be uh, Pixar's good. Is everyone else's fantastic? And I'm just going to edit out when you said that before, so it looked like I'm a genius. Yeah, deal. It's it's certainly a, a step back up for Pixar. You know, I mean, the film that was out before this was, I think, it was Cars Two, the last sort of original theatrical release. Mm. Or was that was it Toy Story three that was out before then? Either way, it's miles better than Cars two. So Brave, it's kind of an obvious choice, perhaps, but a, a deservedly obvious choice as opposed to one of those films that you see, 
you think to yourself, oh, that's going to get nominated for an Oscar, but you secretly know it's kind of rubbish. Maybe it's a time for, given the strength of the category, maybe it's not a shoo-in for Pixar as it has been, you know, for many years, you know, maybe given the strength of the other films in the category, they may not be on as, uh, you know, solid foundations as they as they would wish to be. So basically, Steve, what you're saying is Pixar's days are numbered. They've had their day in the sun. Well, I'm, I'm not the one saying that. Well, I am actually. Uh-uh. Yeah. It's odd. I mean, to me, it's almost like career suicide for you to be that blatant about one of the biggest animation studios to, to project their downfall. <laughs> no, it, it, it is. I mean, but when you decide to become an animation journalist, it's hardly a career. That's why I do such a, a mediocre job with my animation journalism. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it takes effort for me to become mediocre. <laughs> yeah. has some good people in it. Billy Connolly. Yeah. Ooh, Kelly McDonald mm. is uh, the main girl. You ever see Train Spotting? Yes, yeah. It's not like Train Spotting. <laughs> very, uh, very easy on the eyes. And she's also in Boardwalk Empire with the, uh, the added bonus of not being jailbait. As <laughs> a plus. Yeah. Also up for an Oscar, Frankenweenie, the the stop motion reimagining, I guess, of Tim Burton's old uh, film of the same name. Mm-hmm. Very retro Burton. It was like a kind of. Uh, it was odd. It was like he was. It was the Burton of days gone by. Well, I expect there's sort of a demand for that of of my generation. I'm not entirely sure if if you know today's Burton audience, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Alice in Wonderland and. Uh, uh, what else has he done recently? Uh, so yes, Frank and Weenie, also up for an Oscar, and we talked to uh, Saunders of McKinnon and Saunders uh, a few podcasts back. should check that out, find out a little bit more about the puppet-making side of the film. Paranorman, also up for an Oscar, and we've talked to Chris Butler and Sam Fell. I really, I loved Paranorman. Have you seen Paranorman yet? Yeah, I saw it with you. Yeah, of course you have. <laughs> That was a screening where we had our eardrums blown out by the crappy like sound. Yes, yeah, I remember now. Yeah, the pirates in an adventure with scientists. I love this film as well. It's just full of everything that I love about film: eccentric and wacky and fun. Um, Wreck It Ralph. The reason we haven't seen this yet then is because um, it's one of these brilliant things that Disney does, and is it releases a film in America, and then six months later we get it in the UK. Yeah, I. Which winds me up. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. It really, I might, I might go off on another rant here, but it really winds me up how by the time everyone's finished talking about Wreck-It Ralph, you know, by the time it's out on Blu-ray and DVD in America, we're still three weeks away from, from having it that, over that here. That really bothers you? It really does, yeah. How, how many people in your life are talking about that they've seen Wreck-It Ralph and are lauding it over you? Well, there is that, but the fact that people have seen it and that we can't see it offers up a sort of exclusivity that is unnecessary. Interesting. This is how my my psyche deals with it. I see the release date is six months after the US release date, and so, oh, I guess I'll see it in February and not in August then. And that's the entirety of what my brain devotes to that issue. Really? I guess that's why that it's allowed to happen, Steve, is people like me aren't making a stand. You're like the Alex Jones of the animation <laughs> distribution world. It's, Thank you very much. <laughs> if only more people listened to you, we'd start the revolution. 
<laughs> it starts here, Ben. It starts. It starts on the January Squiggly podcast. I can just picture the Disney head offices right now. Phones ringing off the hook. Have you heard what they're saying on the Squiggly Animation podcast about our approach to international film distribution? <laughs> <laughs> They'll be bursting into boardrooms and Mr. Iger, Mr. Iger, not now I'm busy, but Squiggly, Squiggly? Mickey Mouse himself, what have I done? Oh, and <laughs> blows his brains out. <laughs> and then they drag him off the premises because you're not allowed to die on Disney premises, <laughs> according to folklore. Yeah, according to bullshit. And lawsuit. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's a comprehensive... Um, look at the Oscar nominees. We at the Squiggly Animation Magazine and Squiggly Animation Podcast fully support and endorse everything that Disney uh, 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 decides to do with their marketing. And uh, gosh darn it, they make some cracking good films. How about that? It's a shame that we can't see them. Best Animated Short Film Nominees. Oh, yeah. Adam and Dog. I know literally nothing about this film. Steve explain it to me it's directed by Minkyu Lee and I think it, it involves uh, a lot of the sort of Disney Pixar animators uh, it looks beautiful from the trailer it's not something that I've seen in any UK festivals but if it, it is showing in any UK festivals I'm sure people get in touch and let us know I would love to see it it, it looks like a looks like a real charmer and obviously it's it's got some quality because it's uh, it's gone through to the Oscars best part is naked cartoon fella yeah. That's what cartoons need, is more naked guys. I mean, naked people. Doesn't have to be gender specific. <laughs> what? What did I say? What happened? Right, okay. Pez or Pes. Yes. Fresh guacamole. This guy's great. He's fantastic. Have you seen Roof Sex? Yes, I guess. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm well versed in the, the antics of Mr. Pez. Yeah, Western spaghetti and fresh guacamole which is just great. Just every instant in it is just another piece of ingenuity. It's, it's just great. I just love watching his stuff. There's a sort of strange quality about the films that are just very satisfying to watch uh, the things that happen, the way the sort of environment is manipulated and objects are played with and sort of cut apart like food or sort of other types of materials. And it's a strangely kind of, I don't know what that sort of satisfaction is. It's a bit like, getting rid of an ingrown hair if that makes any sense no but continue uh though there's no further elucidation there that's just the only thing i can think of to compare the feeling i get from it and don't worry everyone out there who's confused in time you'll come to realize that is literally the best analogy anyone's ever come up with this is why nobody puts our reviews up on the film posters yeah strange that like an ingrowing hair <laughs> squiggly four stars <laughs> well, I'm not saying it's like the hair itself. I mean, that would be a condemnation. You know, it's it's it's, yeah. it's the 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 invigorating feeling you get when uh, when you're you're cleansed and renewed of it. Uh, Head over heels. Uh, the next film on the list, uh, directed by Timothy Eckhart. But we discussed this on the um, Encounters special podcast that we did. So we did. Well, fuck him, uh, Maggie. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I love Head Over Heels, as I've waxed lyrical about it for quite some time. I'm not sure how universally beloved it is. It's It doesn't seem divisive. Like, it doesn't seem like people either love it or hate it. It seems that most people enjoy it uh, that I've talked to. 
uh, I think there's something about it that, for me, gives it a bit more uh, uh, mileage as far as repeat viewing goes. There's a lot of stuff I enjoy about how it came together. Uh, and we have an interview with Tim Eckhart uh, uh, coming up in a future edition, possibly our Oscar special. We'll, uh, we'll determine that closer to the time. We're both incredibly busy at the moment, by the way, so we're just throwing shit against the wall and uh, seeing what sticks. Uh, so if there's any semblance of structure to this podcast or any podcast in the next few months, it's going to be a goddamn miracle. Yeah, it'd be purely coincidental. Yeah. You might notice like little like weird sort of cracks in the professionalism, like that speech I just made about how unprofessional the whole way we're doing the podcast is. No one would yeah. do that. Why would you shoot yourself in the foot like that? Who knows? I can see people listening thinking, what, like you was professional before? <laughs> <laughs> I guess we do have to consider what we're building this on. So, good luck, Timothy. Not to besmirch the legacy of the greatest animated cultural institution of our time, The Simpsons. My heart will not break if the Maggie Simpson short film doesn't win an Oscar. I'm just going to go ahead and admit that. It's, it's a fine film for what it is I just don't think that I mean I you know and I don't that's not me trying to be a sort of reverse snob or kind of too cool for the room like oh that's the Simpsons so it can't win I think there are loads of things about the Simpsons that I think should have been nominated for Oscars in its history now without yeah. hesitation you know I could think of 10 episodes that would be Oscar worthy but uh, uh, that's not really doesn't fit the criteria so I guess this is one of the few things that does I'd probably be a little disappointed if of this crop yeah. it's the one that went. It's not even to say it's a bad film. It's like yeah. it's a sort of... Yeah, I, I, can, I can see where you're coming from. It's got some good points as well. I, I think I said in the article something like uh, David Silverman, who directed it, he's done a fantastic job. He's, he's taken it and made it his own as opposed to making it like an episode of The Simpsons. People shouldn't... I mean, it looks like an episode of The Simpsons or it looks closer to The Simpsons movie in style and palette and etc. I mean, I, I, I did see it uh, through perfectly legitimate channels, mm. whatever they may be. I went to see the film that it played before, which was maybe Ice Age, right? Sure, let's go with that. Um, I mean, it didn't have the kind of universal audience that the Simpsons TV show seemed to have in mind. It was it was much more clearly geared toward like younger children who were going to see the main feature. Yeah, it's good. It's fine. It's whatever. Oscar nomination? I don't know. Uh, I, I can think of many films that were shortlisted, or longlisted, rather, that didn't make their shortlist, that I would have been far happier to see in its place. Yes. I think the, the, the Eagleman Stag should have, and I think you agree. Um, yeah, I think, and Trump. I think O'Willy should have. Yep. But uh, who are we, Steve? Who are we but mere podcasters? in the troublesome yeah. waters of Oscar politics. Uh, hey, more power to him. Hey, John Cars, we interviewed him, didn't we? Or yeah, you did, rather? Yeah, um, it's Annecy. Paperman, the Disney film, or Disney short film, uh, inventive kind of CG slash 2D looking, elaborately rendered kind of, uh, uh, what would you call it? Uh, love story. I mean, I actually haven't seen that one. I think you have, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to talk about it? <laughs> nah. But, <laughs> but do you think it's, uh, uh, do, you, do you think it belongs here? Yes. I always said that the Oscars would end up being a dead heat for me, uh, personally, between Paperman and the Eagleman Stag. 
Obviously, the Eagle Man Stag didn't get nominated, which is a great shame. So, you know, Paperman looks like an extremely strong contender. It's a wonderful film. I mean, just just the, like I say in the in the review, it, it it does with a with a love story in seven minutes what most features struggle to do. Mm-hmm. Grand. Well, if it wins, I rescind all the uh, the things I said about Disney earlier. Disney, you guys are tops. I love your merchandise. I'm a big supporter of your regime, and I love your your delayed uh, international release system. I think it's it's a great way to build audience anticipation, and I do not endorse any of the things that Steve was saying against your fine corporation. Some of those things in a uncanny impersonation of my own voice. So. Oscar season coming soon. Uh, we'll probably do an Oscar or award sort of centric special, I guess, when it actually uh, is on the horizon. So uh, well, I hope so because I've got my bow tie ready. Yeah, yeah. Just my bow tie. It's, you know, need to get the rest sorted as well. I just wear the tie and nothing else. That'll be it, Ben. Like Yogi Bear. The prize is for you. What was Yogi Bear's collar attached to? Like somewhere, someone's going around with a shirt without a collar. He clearly mauled somebody for the uh, for just the collar. Yeah, they're just like, <laughs> they're hospital like they're quadriplegic now, <laughs> having to be fed through a tube. More awards to ring in the new year. Baftas, Steve. What's a Bafta, and what, why are they important? Uh, a Bafta is a award. This is my quest to make this podcast the most condescending podcast out there. <laughs> well, listening audience. Every year, the okay. <clears throat> interestingly enough, in the shorts uh, this year, we have three films uh, which uh, didn't get through to the Oscars. Philistines. You said it, not me. Nominations for the best animated short go to uh, Here to Fall uh, by Chris Kelly and uh, Evelyn McGrath. I'm Fine Thanks by Eamon O'Neill and The Making of Longbird by Will Anderson and uh, Ainsley Henderson. I believe we've talked about both. I'm fine, thanks. I'm Longbird uh, in past podcasts. Yeah. Uh, but I've not come across here to fall before. Have you? Uh, I have not. No, I didn't. It's, it's, it's passed me by. I wasn't particularly active on the, uh, the festival circuit last year, but the ones I did go to, I didn't catch this one. Looks interesting. Kind of uh, CG Inception-ish from the trailer. Yeah, well, the trailer is, is, I guess, conveying more the dynamic qualities of it rather than the story so i don't mm. really i can't really comment further boy will my face be red if it wins the bafta <laughs> I'll, I'll try and do some research on it between now and then why change the habit of a lifetime ben let's not bother doing any research and the features were brave frankenweenie and paranorman so yeah there you go we like them all so as well as the oscars the baftas uh there's also the annie awards just specifically animation which is right up my street. Why is that? Uh, I like animation, Ben. I think it's uh, oh. I think it's all right, you know. So many things are falling into place now. <laughs> oh, you're a fan of animation. Yeah. I gotcha. Is Annie an abbreviated, like, uh, animation type? Or is it founded by some girl called Annie? Um, I believe cartoons? it's uh, to, do with the, uh, to do with that musical about the ginger girl. Oh, yes, that famous animated musical. It's quite a diverse award ceremony. Uh, we've got, like, um, short subject, which isn't just short film. I mean, Bill Plimpton's couch gags in there. Mm-hmm. You've got TV production for preschool children, TV production for children, 
video games, student films, live action animated effects, a whole host of worthy nominees there, you know, from the world of animation. It's, you know, it's nice to see something so specific. A lot of stuff that will be familiar to squiggly readers, of course, you know, most of you are animation fans in general, so quite a lot of it will probably be familiar. But, you know, the usual suspects, Hotel Transylvania, uh, uh, Paranorman, Rise of the Guardians, Pirates. What's what's also good is if uh, if you look through the list and find some stuff that you're not familiar with, it's always uh, it's a good good bit of research, really, isn't it? You know. Well, one of the nominees is for the Pirates Band of Misfits. We, of course, interviewed Peter Lord, the director, back in uh, the very first Squiggly podcast. But the gentleman nominated for character animation in a feature production for the uh, Annie Awards is Will Beecher. And, uh, well, blow me down, we have an interview with him, too. How's that for a segue? That pretty spawn. Oh, I am a smooth son of a bitch. <sighs> Eleven podcasts in and we've got this locked down. Hells, yeah. Neither of us actually uh, were privileged enough to talk to this gentleman. It was one of our uh, 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 helper elves. Yeah, it was um, Pete Gallagher went down uh, at the Bradford Animation Festival and interviewed Will Beecher there. Excellent. Well, as the only other sort of option as far as like talking about the Annie Awards goes is to just methodically list every single nomination, which would take about five hours. Uh, why don't we just cut to that interview <laughs> and bail? Yeah. So here's an interview with uh, Will Beecher, character animator on The Pirates, uh, Band of Misfits, Adventure with Scientists. Philosopher's Stone, whatever. Uh, talking to Pete Gallagher. Excellent. Uh, okay, so first question. Um, when you did Weatherman, uh, it was part of the air scheme. And it's here in Bradford. Can you explain a bit about what what that process was like, or what it entailed? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I've just finished working on uh, first the Wear Rabbit, and um, luckily there was a there was a bit of a break that I could use to work on some of my own projects. And I had two ideas for short films, and one was a Weatherman, the other one was a film called Offbeat. And I kind of applied for them both at the same time, not expecting to get very far, um, but I managed to get onto the air scheme and um, basically involved giving them a fairly basic outline to start with. So I'd had this idea that was going to be about a weatherman who wasn't very good at his job and was some sort of struggle with technology. So when I first thought about it, it was all about the old magnetic kind of symbols that they used to stick up. And basically all based around that theme of things yeah. that could go wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I had to submit that and then come here to the museum for an interview, which I remember doing. And I came up, I did the interview. It was terrifying in that there was a panel probably of eight to ten people sitting around in a kind of horseshoe shape. Yeah. Um, but amazingly, they said yes. So um, the process started and I spent three months developing the film in the booth, yeah. in the museum, yeah, with all yeah. the members of the public. How was that um, being... Working in that in that sort of environment, it's very strange. <laughs> yeah, it was um, it was a means to making a film, so I was yeah, happy to of do course. it. Yeah, yeah. But it was kind of terrifying um, when you had you just heard groups of children getting off coaches and basically running through the museum. You could hear them getting closer and closer, <laughs> and then they'd come in, and as soon as they found a living exhibit. They just, that was it then. They'd just be there for ages, just banging on the glass. So the first two months, really, I was designing, doing the animatic, um, working a lot on computer and then building the puppets. So that was okay. I didn't mind doing that in front of people. Yeah. Um, 
but I did in the first week go out and buy the biggest headphones I could find. <laughs> Even if I wasn't listening to stuff, it was yeah, just to kind of, of show that they wouldn't get through to me. Definitely. Uh, so, and the yeah. other thing I did was I had a webcam and I filmed myself in the booth and I did loads of time lapse and I built a website. Um, and it was really like a really good, I wrote a diary about it. And it was a really good kind of outlet for yeah. the kind of stress I went through. Yeah. yeah. And then I went back to Bristol and I think we had about a year before I had to deliver the finished film. Right, and I got together a crew of people that I'd worked with at Ardman, so it was a brilliant. I yeah. mean, I basically came off the feature film, the list of the most amazing and Claire Jennings yeah, producer, yeah, yeah. Oscar-winning producer, Tristan Oliver, cinematography, Greg Perler, who's an editor for DreamWorks and Disney, and um, it was great. It was the most amazing crew. So uh, yeah, I was lucky. so it was a bit unusual in a way because you you did boxed in like you're saying in 2002. I was seeing that honestly, actually, and then so you, that was your student film final film so then you went from doing a student film to wear rabbit and then back to doing a your own film was that was that right what was the yeah. transition like yeah well it was great because um because i'd learned so much during um during wear rabbit just about the process and mm. stuff i mean when i made boxed in i had quite a lot of experience at Artman through work experience and right. i kind of got a summer job there so yes you chicken run I, I went there and i was press molding wings oh really and i went right. back on tortoise and hare and i was sculpting stuff oh, so i was learning loads and when i did the film i just i obviously i knew quite a lot about how they made things yeah which helped massively yeah yeah um but then it was great after Wear Rabbit, having been directed by someone for the first time, yeah. to go back and be totally in charge of the world. I did squeeze in a, a, like a, a short film that I made at Ardman, um, and that I created kind of before and during The Weatherman. Right. So that was more of a run-up, because that was just me and a cameraman, um, much smaller scale, to create that three minute film and that was a digital short yeah. um, and then I went on to the other man with a bigger crew so. on a small film like that you're talking about do you just sort of feel it as you go kind of thing more is it more rough and ready or is it still that that is rehearsed it, it was quite planned because it was funded by um, the UK yeah. Film Council and yeah, the Lottery so we had quite a tight animatic for it yeah. that I was working to but it is completely different when you're animating your own character. Yeah. There was no one telling me. I had it in my head. But weirdly, it was such a, the whole process, all the model making, set building and stuff, it was so much work. By yeah. the time I got into the studio, I was already a bit behind. So it was quite rushed, some of it. Yeah. And uh, I didn't spend quite as long as I wanted to, just kind of enjoying that stage. It was still, I mean, I learned loads from doing it. Yeah. But, um, but it was definitely more pressured, that shooting stage. Yeah. And then the weatherman, again, because I'd never really worked with the crew before, so I had a, a guy called Rodri, who's an animator at Ardman. He helped yeah. um, animate the bird, mostly. And just working with more than myself was quite a lot to take on. So I learned about, well, I guess I learned a bit more about how directors work. Yeah, yeah it's a bit more delegation involved. Yeah. yeah, yeah. and it's, yeah. it's a challenge that I can see Nick and Pete have spent years kind of learning how to tell people what, to, to do what they want them to do because it, you have it in your head it's very hard to get that across to, to someone who doesn't have it in their head yeah yeah so I mean, I, um, but it's funny because you were saying again you started as a hobby you think to some extent stop motion is like the best way to carry on a hobby that you just love to as a kid yeah I mean I'm, I'm still a bit amazed that I'm doing it and it's my career yeah um, exactly yeah. but being a freelance animator is slightly precarious I'd say mm. I mean it's great this year we've had 
Frank and Weenie and um, Paranorman and Pirates all coming out. It's amazing to have yeah. three stop frame films. But there are Definitely. obviously years where there's none. So Yeah, it's a bit of a... You get three all at once and then a few years where there's none. It was the same yeah. a few years ago where we had Boston Grumman Corpse right out with mm. a couple of weeks of each other. Yeah, Both of those have been in production for about five years. Or yeah, it's quite ironic, really. Um, just going to back to talk about the air scheme. Um, because you, I think you were the last last year to do it. Do you think that that sort of thing is a bit of a shame that there's nothing like that? What do you yeah. feel about being the last person to do it? And yeah, I, I do. I think it's really sad um, because the air scheme was really seemed to be more focused on narrative and character. Mm. So there's other funding out there, but it tends to be a bit more abstract and yeah. and maybe a bit more experimental. Yeah. Um, but I was aware of the air scheme when I first got into animation, and mm. I went to Momi in London and saw someone doing it there so yeah so it was great to actually go all the way through and, and get them myself i was just Definitely. a bit disappointed yeah. it didn't carry on for the other people yeah 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 okay so you've also worked on you know a few of the series you know Shaun the sheep and creature comforts um what's that like from working on features is there any difference in the way you work or is it yeah definitely yeah, yeah. um well with the series like Shaun the sheep they're still very much about acting and performance and there's no dialogue, so that throws up some different challenges. You know, you've got to tell a story visually much more. And also the kind of rate that you have to produce obviously increases. So with a feature film, we're trying to shoot a couple of seconds a day at best. Mm. Um, and on something like Sean the Sheep, we have to create more like six to eight seconds. Right. So it's faster way of working. Yeah. But it's not necessarily worse. It's quite nice because you can get into a flow and sometimes mm. you're a bit more spontaneous. On right. a film, it is very planned. You don't get quite so kind of deep into the character and, you know, you, I, I really would spend on a feature film the first three to six months learning about the character as I go. Right. Like all the other animators, you know, you, yeah. you basically start off with an object that you don't really understand or, or know of, mm. which is the pirate captain yeah. or any other character. And then it's a process of getting used to how they work, how they move and finding out what makes them that character on the screen because um, Mark Shapiro was saying that the process is almost like a live action in terms of you start off rehearsing the character moves first and then you experimenting was it like that with with pirates when you're doing the so you started yeah. off just with yes. character and experimenting yeah so everyone every animator that came on to the project would have a kind of training phase where they just have one character in a testing unit and they'd have a line of dialogue and they'd just shoot that different line a couple of different ways and get feedback right. from the lead animators and the director. Right. And so um, there were four of us who were leading character animators yeah. and at the start of the film we had you know a fairly lengthy build-up where we'd be doing the initial tests and getting feedback from the directors. So we kind of evolved that just with the, the very small group and then it was spread out. Yeah. And as I said, we'd have every two weeks, we'd all get together and watch all the shots that had been done and we'd talk about ones that worked really well, things that didn't work as well and just kind of have a, some sort of sense of where it was going. Yeah, because it's like when you got, you were saying, you know, you were, you were a lot of the live action videos. This is at a later stage, you know, when we're talking about when you do an actual shot. How much do you, you know, you've got the live action video reference, you've got the voice track already there. Yeah. What do you add to that as an animator when you're actually down, adding it to the scene? Is there... I mean, it, it starts with the voice, which has been directed by the director as well. So mm -hmm. you've got 
the voice actor putting in what they think's right. Yeah. But also you've got the director kind of leading it as a whole. Yeah. And then the conversation I have with Pete or Jeff or Jay about how I can embellish that voice record. Yeah. And then really it comes down to me making sure I've ticked the boxes for what Pete or Jay have in their head, but also giving it the kind of tiny nuances that I know will make this shot work. So, yeah. so the timing is down to the animator. Yeah. You'll talk about the broad, broad shot with yeah. the directors, but um, you see the differences between different animators' work mm. if you work in it every day and you watch the character. So when I watch the film, I can see 20 different pirate captains. All next to each other. Yeah. Excellent, yeah, because yeah, you were saying then, weren't you, that they, um, some people are better at doing comedy, some people are better at doing walk cycles or whatever, or facial expressions. Yeah. So what, what would your... Uh, what would uh, you say is your particular... I guess it's... I guess I really like comedy and timing yeah. and that kind of thing, which is slightly ironic because on Pirates I really focused on the kind of character stuff, the scene, you know, the baby clothes scene, which was slightly downbeat when they're in the cabin and he's decided to give up piracy because he's yeah. rubbish. And then the um, Darwin scene where Darwin comes in and tries to persuade him to go to London. And then, and then the drunk scene was great because that, that had a bit more kind of... How was it doing that? It sounds pretty complicated. It I'm was. A, yeah. a drunken character. Yeah, it was complicated. I did a lot of research. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see the live action uh, reference to that. Yeah. Definitely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was great. I loved it. I mean, but also what was nice as a, as a lead on a character like that, a character that basically hadn't been there before. So I had some scope to put some of my own stuff into it. But I loved seeing other people do things with him that I hadn't thought of. Mm. And um, it was really inspiring. Some of, the, some of the guys who came over from other countries to animate him just brought this extra kind of... Extra element to it. Yeah, yeah, which was great. Yeah, fantastic. Have you got any more things in the pipeline? Any more short film ideas or anything? Well, nothing's at that stage. I've got lots of seeds of ideas. But at the moment, I'm just really tied up with being a freelance animator. That's what I'm focusing on. Right. But as soon as I get a window, I'm determined to do some stuff. And some of the things we've done recently, which are too kind of top secret to really talk about, involve mm. a different technique. So I've been looking into that, and that's quite exciting. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, thanks ever so much uh, for talking to us. That's Pleasure. It. That's it. Will Beecher there from the Pirates and uh, uh, Adventure with Scientists, one of those guys who, who made the puppets come to life through the demonic godlessness of animation. And uh, very interesting fellow as well. You can see an interview with Will Beecher on the Squiggly website. It's also got an exclusive video where he gets the puppets out and you know plays with the puppets for a bit with us, which is nice. Mm. Yeah, it is nice when they when they whip the puppets out. Although it makes it's kind of when you're so used to seeing the puppets like alive on the screen, it is a bit like cadaverous. Well, especially when he starts pulling the faces off and putting other faces <laughs> on. Like, I'm just going to remove his jaw. <laughs> I like to think that like puppets when they're made take on the same life that the toys in Toy Story get. So every time you remove their body parts, they feel the pain. <laughs> As soon as the Aztec West shuts down for the evening, it's just puppets screaming, Why? Why are they doing this to us? All these disembodied mouths in boxes screaming. Why is pain the only sensation I can feel? <laughs> I see a childlike sense of wonder is, uh, isn't lost on you, is it? 
So next up, I'm very happy to say we have an interview with Bill Plimpton. Uh, who some people may have heard of, some people may not have heard of, but those who have heard of him, I'm sure that the majority of them will agree that he's somewhat of an animation hero. Bill was actually my first uh, squiggly interview subject many moons ago. My memory of it is uh, slightly muddied as I was tremendously sleep deprived and I'd landed in Stuttgart with a, you know, a vague plan to meet up with him and, and, and chat. And as luck would have it, the first cafe I walked into, he was there. So uh, rather than go on this uh, seemingly impossible hunt, I was able to just get up my notes and recorder and we did it on the spot. And uh, that was how I met one of my biggest influences, bleary-eyed, disheveled and rambling. But uh, it was awesome. Anyway, Bill Plimpton is uh, one of those figures in this industry that really shouldn't need an introduction, but just in case, he's a tremendously prolific, Oscar-nominated independent animator and filmmaker. His studio, Plimptoons, is based in New York, and he's been responsible for over 40 shorts, countless TV commercials, music videos, and uh, remarkably, nine independent features, six of which have been animated, and pretty much entirely on his own with, by industry standards, very, very small crews helping out. Now, uh, for UK listeners, I would say that probably the first thing that comes to mind as a point of reference would be a particularly trippy ad campaign he did for Knickknacks, the, uh, the sort of malformed looking crisps, which was largely based on one of his best shorts called Push Comes to Shove. Yeah, that's my, that's my favorite. My favorite Bill Plimpton shot is Push Comes to Shove. It's, uh, just a fantastic display of, of the sort of classic double act meets uh, sort of Looney Tunes sensibility with a with a the extra Bill Plimpton weirdness thrown in. It's a very particular style he has. It's drawn in coloured and pencils with a very low frame rate, which you know works largely because the comedic timing is impeccable and also because the quality of the artwork is tremendous. Now, I'm not sure if they themselves would look at it this way, but for me, I've always kind of associated his work with Joanna Quinn's. I mean, obviously, you know, she has a very feminine energy and he has a very masculine energy and she's British and he's American, but there are sort of things that kind of tie them together. And a particularly fond memory I have of Joanna Quinn was a talk she gave at, I think, one of the Bristol Encounters festivals uh, in which she was citing influential films and uh, Bill's film, Your Face, was one of them. And that film in particular is one of my favorites, and I think I already told the story of how it sort of focused my attentions on animation, so, you know, I'm not going to uh, rehash that whole thing. I'd say, like, um, what you're saying about Joanna Quinn and, and Bill Plimpton's work, they're both, they're both excellent, you know, draftspeople. The, what they can do with a, the pencil stroke is the reason why they're still held in such high regard. Certainly. You know, before the, before the sort of, look at the, the, the sort of narrative quality or the, their methods of, of storytelling... I think everyone will always remember their first sort of Bill Plimpton film, you know, or ever heard of him. In mine, it was, uh, you know, first year university, didn't know much about indie animators. And uh, Bill Plimpton was at the Bradford Animation Festival. And it was like, oh, we'll go along, see see if this guy's any good. <laughs> see if, you know, and what an eye-opener it was. Mm. He was showing uh, Mutant Aliens and uh, I Married a Strange Person and, and, and stuff like that. And I watched all these films and, and thought, wow, this is incredible. This is, this is amazing. Oh, yeah. Do you have particular favorites? Or Yeah, I mean, aside from the, the ones I've mentioned, I'm a big fan of, uh, of all his features. My favorite so far is called Idiots and Angels. It's a perfectly produced independent film. 
we talk about this coming up, but like the the absence of voices, if anything, actually kind of um, makes it more credible a film. You don't need the dialogue to get the humor. And what you do get is this tremendous atmosphere, this real sense that you're watching something special that has jokes in it. And some of them are quite vulgar jokes and silly jokes and whatever, but it feels sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> that makes any sense. Um, and that appears to be what he's done with uh, uh, Cheating, which is his current film. Uh, you can watch the first few minutes of it online and has a very similar, if not you know, identical uh, atmosphere from those first few minutes. And I'm really, really looking forward to seeing how the whole film looks when it's done. He's raising funds at the moment through Kickstarter, as with uh, uh, John Chris for Lucy was a few months ago, and uh, a lot of animators sort of have done over the last couple of years. In fact, actually, that's how I was introduced to Kickstarter, was uh, I donated to a documentary being made about Bill Plimpton uh, by a girl called Alexia, who then proceeded to finish and distribute this documentary that I think did very well. Um, and uh, this is the great thing about these... these uh, endeavors that you kind of pitch in on an early stage enough sort of time goes by i get a package in the mail the other day and it's the documentary on dvd i'd forgotten i'd already like essentially bought it a couple of years ago yeah and uh oh i got something from john k not that long ago you know and i'd almost forgotten that oh yeah i was gonna get something back and sort of in true kickstarter fashion of the the more successful endeavors a lot of really amazing stuff you know, if you're a Bill Plimpton fan or animation fan to check out to sort of motivate you to get in on it. There's also just something kind of cool about seeing your name attached to something that's a good product. Yeah, there's the extra bit of kudos there, really, that you've become a part of it. You're, you've yeah. you've contributed. It's a more universal way of the idea that you're contributing by buying DVDs at a festival or paying to see these guys, uh, you know, retrospectives of these guys' works. And, and, you know, that's how they would usually make money. But this is a much better way of doing it online. You know, Exactly. Reaching out to the audiences that can't get to Annecy or can't get to Stuttgart or Ottawa or anywhere else. When I first heard about this film, which is a love story that uh, I guess goes off the rails and becomes quite dark, was during this first interview in Stuttgart. Actually, I'd read a little bit about it in his, uh, his first sort of written book about his career called Independently Animated, which is a great book, really is. It's like an autobiography combined with an art-of book. It's really, really well done. It's, it's a weighty book as well. It's, oh, yeah. It is everything you need to know about the man. It is, it is incredible. Big, big coffee table mother of a book. As in you could use it as a coffee table. It's that big. It's that good, you know. Yeah. If you're if you're a Bill Plimpton fan, then yeah, you'd get this book. So he has some sort of prelim sketches of, of cheating in that book. And then, uh, well, this is what he had to say about it in the uh, the early stages of, uh, of production. Uh, this is Bill Plimpton at uh, ITFS Stuttgart in uh, 2011. You mentioned before you're working on this new film, Cheating. Yeah. Are you keeping it kind of... No, not at all. Not at all. I got about a third of it done. Uh, it's looking really good. People really respond to the pencil test that I've been doing. I may start releasing clips of the pencil test online just to get people uh, excited about it. Uh, I'm hoping to finish it in um, maybe two years um, and then bring it to Cannes or Toronto or Sundance. Yeah, I had a, the, some of the, the early sketches in the book. Oh, um, yeah. Uh-huh. A lot more exaggerated, a lot more stylized, a lot more um, distorted, which I, I'm really excited about. 
was it more was it more like an influence of like uh, Charles Adams? <laughs> Not Charles Adams. I love Charles Adams, especially his humor, his his, uh, his weird dark gags. Yeah. Uh, if you wanted to find an influence, look at Oscar Gillo or uh, Carlos Nine, two Argentinians, believe it or not, who are wonderful artists, and those, those are the guys that are influencing me on this one. It is an Angels, the influence was actually more Charles Adams and um, a guy by the name of uh, Roland Topor, and he was a big influence on, the, on uh, uh, Idiots and Angels. But the new film, it's really more extended and exaggerated uh, physiques. More like possibly the music video stuff. Yeah, 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 the music video. In fact, I just did a music video for um, Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, cool. Uh, I wanted to experiment more with that stylized anatomy, really stretched out anatomy. So that was a little bit on the origins of Cheatin', the current Bill Plimpton film, which is now in its final stages, uh, nearly two years after that interview, or about just over a year and a half after that interview. So where he's at now is the uh, the coloring and making it all look pretty. And uh, it really will look fantastic the way they're going about it. So here is a update from the great independent animator Bill Plimpton. So, uh, well, you've been working on uh, Cheatin' for quite a while now. Um, uh-huh. Can you give us a, an update on how things have progressed and where you are with it at the moment? Yeah, uh, actually, I think the film was started in 2008, quite a while ago, and I was very excited about it. Uh, and then we got these two European uh, distributors very excited, and they said, well, we could do some of the production in, in Europe and pay all your bills. I said, wow, that's great. I don't have to put money into it. So they looked around Europe for about a year, year and a half, uh, and never delivered. So I said, I, I can't wait any longer. I'm, I'm going to start working on the film. And so I picked it up again around 2011, I think, and uh, finished the animation around 2011. And then 2012, we started doing uh, the coloring. Mm-hmm. Uh, the middle of 2012, actually June. And so we're about a third of the way coloring. We would like to try and get it into Toronto, which the deadline is June uh, of 2013. So that is our goal. I don't know if we're going to make it or not because we still have a lot of coloring to do. But that's why we started this Kickstarter campaign was to raise money to hire a few more colorists so we could uh, hit the deadline for uh, for Toronto. If we don't make that deadline, if we don't finish it in June, then we'll shoot for Sundance uh, or Berlin or maybe a can for next year. But that's that's a long wait. I don't know if I can wait a whole, a whole nother year. Yeah. Do you find that having festival deadlines or do you find that working toward like a submission deadline kind of kicks things into gear a bit? Well, it certainly intensifies it, but the the downside is oftentimes I don't have money for my own living expenses because <laughs> I spent it all in the film because I'm trying to hit a deadline. And I think in, in a way that's good. I, I think I, I love sacrificing my personal life for the uh, the good of the film, and it's kind of exciting. It's, it's, it's a gamble. It's like being a gambler. You know, I'm betting all this money, all my private money, on a film that who knows, maybe it'll be a success, maybe it'll be a flop. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's exciting. That's that's kind of thrilling. But in terms of uh, 
whether uh, if it was a studio project and they had a set deadline, uh, that was a lot scarier because they don't like to move those deadlines. And if they uh, they feel you're falling behind, they'll take it away from you and they're taking it away from me and put someone else in charge. So that is not a comfortable way to work. So the festival deadline is good in that every three um, uh, three times a year there's a big of glut of festivals that are really important. There's a Sundance Berlin, uh, I think Rotterdam is around that time too, I could be wrong, which is in January. Then there's the Cannes uh, uh, event, which is in uh, May. And then of course the, um, the Toronto, Berlin, Venice, Telluride uh, festivals, which is in uh, September. Right. And so, you know, if you don't make one group of festivals, you can wait around and hit the other group of festivals. So it's not that scary. It's really not that intense. Hmm. So I guess with the the getting all these new colorists on board, the idea is to paint is it every single frame of animation in watercolors. Yeah, it, it's a watercolor look. It's a digital. It's a digital uh, experience that we're doing. We're not doing uh, hand-colored watercolor, but uh, yet it looks like watercolor. So it's kind of the same, uh, same method. It's just using a, a, a electronic brush rather than a, a, a real brush. Uh, but it, it is very painstaking. It is very time-consuming, um, and it's a, it's a look. It's a very special look that uh, I used to do when I was uh, doing illustration. It was. It was, it was uh, pen and ink, and then I would watercolor on top of it. I love that look. It was so luscious. It was so rich. It was so handmade. It was very anti-computer. Uh, hmm. So I wanted to try and recreate it with this film. And uh, the, if you look at the Kickstarter campaign, you can see some clips of it. And it really is lush and, and beautiful and uh, kind of Degas, uh, Winslow Homer kind of look. That's so wonderful. Yeah. I saw the uh, the opening sequence over the weekend, and uh, right. it really has a lovely vibe. Like, uh, yeah, thank you. we're very excited. We we think it's going to take off. I really think there's going to be a big audience for this film, and so that's why I'm spending all this money on uh, trying to get the film uh, uh, finished by June. Yeah, can you tell us much about the story of the film without giving away too many surprises? Oh yeah, sure. It's uh, I don't know if you're familiar with James M. Kane. He was a uh, Hollywood screenwriter in the 30s and 40s, and he wrote such films as Double Indemnity and and um, uh, Mildred Pierce and Postman Always Rings Twice, which are very sordid, kind of dark, romantic, uh, lusty, uh, uh, sexual films. Um, and so this is uh, along those lines. It's a couple who. Um, are madly in love, but outsiders try to break them up for their own selfish reasons. So there's a lot of cheating. That's where the name comes from, and um, you know, backdoor shenanigans and things like that. Uh huh. Excellent. I guess taking on a, a long form story, a feature film, is, is with such a small crew, and it, it's quite a rare thing. Obviously, tremendously labor intensive, uh, yes. challenging. I and mean, you've managed it quite a few times now. Is this your seventh? feature seventh animated feature right. i've done uh three live action features um of varying successes um the animation seems to sell a lot better than than live action but i'll probably uh stick with uh, animation because i love to draw i love to make these films there's total freedom i can do everything myself or at least all the drawing myself so i i find it's it's much more gratifying and fulfilling to uh, to do animation. 
Mm-hmm. And when you start off a project with that like initial idea, do you know from the beginning if it's going to be a short film or a longer form story, or is it more of a gradual process to come to that decision? Oh, no, absolutely. I, I know if the idea has a lot of substance, if there's a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of variations on, on a theme, a lot of uh, uh, d- uh, deep, dark places to go to with film, then I know it's going to be a feature. But if it's a, just a quick little joke story, then I, I know it's going to be a short. So I know right off the bat uh, how long the film will be when I, when I start it. You've been working on quite interesting series of videos documenting the production process. Um, yes. I think for any sort of animator or filmmaker, it's quite interesting to see that uh, and other people's approach and whatnot. And what was whose idea was it to kind of document the film in that way? Uh, you know, I've done that with a lot of my movies, uh, not on the internet, but usually I, I have a crew or a friend go by with a camera and and um, uh, visit every once a week to to get an update on the project. I did it from the tune. I had a cameraman follow me. Mutant Aliens, I had someone follow me, uh, Idiots and Angels, we, we did that. And now that the, uh, the reception is so good with the internet, we decided to do that with, uh, with this film. And uh, so every uh, two weeks or every week, Desiree, my producer, co- goes by and, and films me as I do the uh, animation. And I think it's really a wonderful way to uh, not only promote the project, but also show people what goes into making an animated feature film. And you'll never see Disney or DreamWorks uh, go behind the scenes and and follow the artists uh, as they make the film, which is kind of sad. It's kind of tragic that they're they're so afraid of of doing that. Uh, I think it's a a wonderful um, way for people, for young students, for young kids to see how an animated film is made and and how much fun it is, how easy it is. Uh, It's also a good way to promote. It's sort of interesting you bring that up. Did you see that film Sting's wife did about the Disney film? The I think it's called The Sweatbox, and it was no, no. I'd love to see it. In fact, I, I should Netflix it because uh, I, I've heard great things about it. I think it's it's quite telling because I, I think Disney don't want people to see it oh, really? because it does what you just described. It it, it sort of follows yeah. the artists, and there uh, are all sorts of elements of the production that kind of you know falter as it goes. And yeah. I guess they kind of want to keep it sort of seem like everything's magical and kind of comes together. Like, yeah, uh, right. That's that's not the case. It's always a lot of work and a lot of pressure and a lot of uh, negative feelings, a lot of fights and, and things like that. But that's part of the creative process. So I think it's good that people see that. Yeah. Part of the uh, videos you're doing, there's a sort of parallel case study with... Um, another animator, Signe uh, Bauman, is that how you pronounce her name? Yes, yes, Signe um, Bauman. And that's also quite interesting to see, someone putting together another independent film, but with a quite different approach in several areas. And, yes, uh, you're right. How did the two of you come to know each other's work? Uh, she knocked on my door, I think in the mid-90s, uh, when she was just visiting New York from uh, Latvia. Mm-hmm. And she had a portfolio of drawings. Uh, she had done some animated shorts in Latvia when she was a student. And at that point, I needed someone to help me paint my cells. I was painting my own cells. And so she said she would help out. So she uh, um, 
uh, decided to live in New York <laughs> and work in my studio, and I helped her get a green card. And uh, so she stayed with me for, I'm guessing, about 10 years. It's hard to uh, know exactly how long she stayed. But she was phenomenal. She was a very talented, very uh, interesting person, very funny, had great stories. And so she started making her own short films here in New York. And then um, I guess she was inspired by my um, my success as a short filmmaker or feature filmmaker. And she decided to make her feature film called Rocks in My Pockets. And although she started later than I did, uh, we, they both sort of came together at the same time. And so we decided to interview each other as we were in production and kind of race to see who finished first. And she's finished uh, before me. Uh, she may have it ready for Cannes, I don't know, but we, we may both try and enter it in Toronto uh, competing against each other. Uh -huh. So it, it's a very friendly competition. We we do criticize each other. I think that's healthy. Yeah. Uh, I have some problems with her film. She has definitely problems with my film, but I think that's a good uh, it's a good thing to uh, hear the uh, the negative parts of of our of our projects. Do you find that the better way to like really grow and really kind of push yourself is to hear something negative that you wouldn't have thought of perhaps before? That sort of well, as an artist, I tell this to everybody. As an artist, you have to be prepared to hear criticism and you have to accept criticism uh, because when your film hits the movie theaters, all the newspapers are going to really slam it. And uh, I, I read the reviews. I, I, I don't agree with all the reviews, but definitely there's, there's truth in some of the reviews. And they, are, they, won't, they aren't your friend. And they will say uh, uh, things that, that can be very negative. So it's better to hear these negative criticisms before the film was finished. So hopefully you can stem the, uh, the these critics, make the film as good as, as possible before the, the, the film is finished, because then it's really too late to go back and fix something that's maybe a glaring error, you know, something as simple as uh, they don't understand a punchline or, or, you know, one character was not, uh, uh, had the right temperament or, you know, things that can be very simply fixed. And that's that's the time to do it before the film is finished, not after the film is done. Mm -hmm. It's also great to see the development from like thumbnail boards to storyboards to layout and so on. And I saw you in a, a festival in England uh, about I think just over a year ago, and you were showing the line test version of what is now the sort of finished painted version of what I saw on the weekend. And it's yeah, sort of really great yeah. to see sort of see how that ended up and. Uh -huh. But I'm particularly fond of like the storyboard stage just because of the, the quality of pencil strokes and things like that. And one of my favorite uh, books of yours is the mm -hmm. Hair High, I guess, storyboard art, but arranged like yes. a comic. And uh, yeah. would releasing something like that be an option for this film? Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, we are thinking, we're, we haven't decided yet, but as an extra bonus for Kickstarter, um, for big Kickstarter donations, we may uh, put together the storyboard as a, um, as a book. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a limited edition book, like 20 or 30 uh, copies of it, so people can get a signed copy of the storyboard. The storyboards are pretty cool. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time on the storyboards. They're basically graphic novels uh, that are basically unpublished. Um, 
but uh, I may when the book when the movie comes out, I may bring it out on as a graphic novel. We haven't decided. A lot of it depends on the kind of distribution we get, how much money is behind it, uh, the promotion, the advertising. So, uh, we, but we may release a, a limited edition for for Kickstarter um, donations. Cool. It's great to to really incentivize and really sort of give the people a sense that. On one hand, yes, it is good to support people you're a fan of, but on the other hand, when you can get something really good back in return, it just yeah. makes so much more sense. Th that's the good thing about me being a traditional animator. I have approximately 30,000 drawings, I have uh, uh, DVDs, I have uh, sketches, I have storyboards. So there's a lot of material that, uh, that we can offer as prizes, as incentives uh, for people who want to uh, get involved in, in, in the campaign. We had someone from yeah, I think it was England or Russia who wanted to put in 5000 bucks, uh, and they would obviously get a big credit on the film as a producer of some sort. And they get dinner with Bill Plimpton, and you get drawings and books and all sorts of cool things. So yeah. there are a lot of goodies to be had. Excellent. So you've worked with some very uh, talented voice actors in the past, although what I found made <laughs> Idiots and Angels, uh, your last feature, really stand out as particularly strong was how well it came off as a silent film or a music-only <laughs> film. It, 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 the music and the visuals really complemented each other. Mm -hmm. And are you going to be going with that same... Are you doing that yeah, with Yeah, there's a number of reasons why uh, I like doing that. One is it's, it's cheaper. Uh, working with voice artists is very expensive. Uh, two, it's quicker. Uh, I, I don't need to deal with lip sync, which is very time-consuming and, and very um, uh, labor-laborious. And then three, I just like the, the, the feeling of telling a story without dialogue. It just, it just feels more from the soul. It feels more... Um, I don't know, visceral. It just feels it just feels more powerful, and it's also it's it's more poetic. It's very pure. It's just telling the story through visuals is a very pure way to tell the story. So, uh, Cheatin is uh, does have no dialogue. I think there's a song with some dialogue in it, and then maybe some words are written out. But basically, it's uh, there's no dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's not a silent film. There is music, uh -huh. sound effects, and. Uh, some singing in there, but uh, it does have no dialogue. Mm -hmm. So that was um, Bill Plimpton there being interviewed by Ben about cheating. You can obviously see a lot more about the film. Uh, he's been he's been doing regular updates, hasn't he, Ben? Regular uh, video blogs. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to sort of hear that motivation behind that, and you know, people do want to see that stuff. People want to see the process. It's it's fascinating. The protege. Signe, uh, who has been sort of involved in some of them, her own coverage of her own film is equally quite fascinating because it's such a very different process, A, from how he does it, but B, from how I do it, and probably from how most people do it as well. Like, it's, it's a filmmaker who has just, like, come across their way of, okay, this is how my animation will come together. And it's, it's interesting to see because we all kind of, I think, tailor our own uh, methodologies to what fits us and what feels right and what creates the best atmosphere to be creative in, you know? Yeah, there's no right way, is there? There's, there's plenty of inspiration out there, but there's no specific right way. So I feel a little bad for people who've only ever known how to animate in Flash. I could appreciate why that would get quite tedious after a while. Whereas if you, if you, you, know, you can use Flash or a digital software as a component of animation, perhaps, 
and then you know the the fun can come in finding all these other ways to put things together and composite things or combine it with live action or photography or traditional animation go back to a light box and sketch again this is a pisser as you know we talked lustfully about our cintiqs one of my favorite things to do last year was go back to the light box yeah. and do a drawn animation to promote a, a project of mine. So, you know, poor old Cindy the Cintiq got dusty for a few months. But of course, now I'm back into that side of things, so it's good to just have more options available to you to not be sort of limited. And I think watching other people's processes, it opens your eyes a bit. It's like, oh, I could, yeah, I could maybe do that, you know. Hopefully not in a way that would rip the other person off. It's just sort of interesting to see how things can be so different and yet fundamentally the same as far as what's trying to be achieved. And staying on the subject of Sidney Bauman's film, which, as he said, is a very different type of film, uh, it's still comedic, but deals with heavier issues, perhaps, anxiety, depression, sort of lifting the veil on that stuff a bit, which is something that immediately piques my interest, because there are so many social issues and health issues and mental health issues that are kind of misrepresented in film and TV and literature and very few people it seems out there can really nail it and it seems that to do so is to acknowledge that there is all sorts of different facets to it humor at times you know gallows humor perhaps but also joy and growth and bizarre unforeseen upsides and it's a very complex type of thing to represent accurately uh, one person I can think of who does it brilliantly is Adam Elliott. Um, and I get a very similar vibe from Sidney Barman. The film is called Rocks in My Pockets. And as well as being fascinating in a technical sense, the production blog is one of the best things I've read online in a long time because it's full of all these amazing stories that kind of piece together and explain where this film came from or why this film has come into being. Now, as well as her association with plimp tunes, she's sort of force of nature in her own right. She makes wonderfully bizarre, dark, ribald, and yet sort of at the same time, very sweet and sincere short films. A couple that did the rounds more prominently would be stuff like Five F***ing Fables and Beat of Sex. And I really wanted to chat with her Firstly, for her side of this, you know, quote unquote race to get the film done between her and Bill, but mainly to find out really where Rocks in My Pockets came from and, uh, well, where she hopes to go with it. So here's a bit of a chat with Signe Bauman. At this stage, I guess, is the animation itself pretty much ready to go? Yes, animation is all finished. All 90 minutes, nine zero minutes wow. are animated. And we still have to cover about probably half an hour. Maybe now, by now, probably less. Mm -hmm. So we are we are looking at uh, finishing the film by April or May if we are lucky with the funding. We still have to do sound and music, which you know takes a long time. It can take some time. Yeah. Do you have people uh, lined up for that? Yes, uh, we had uh, Rob Daly. Uh, he's the sound designer uh, for the film. He recorded the voiceover like from day one. Mm -hmm. So he's like he's been working picking at it over the three years, uh, like adding sound effects and thinking about it. Um, and then the composer, uh, I approached him three years ago. His music is really perfect. His name is uh, Ljova Jurbin. His music is perfect for the project because it's um, kind of Eastern European. Uh, it's very, very playful. 
um, I like that he never takes himself too seriously. So I'm um, just like, I think it's pretty amazing match. And he's going to have live musicians to play and record them in, in the studio. So we need funding for that because all the renting studios, having musicians come and record the music, it all takes money. I mean, there are a lot of things about this project that, uh, and of the work of yours that I've seen so far that really kind of tick a lot of boxes for me. And I think predominantly it's the uh, honesty mm-hmm. in dealing with the subject matter and not like treading on eggshells, uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of a trap that I know some people tend to fall into. Um, filmmakers and people who want to just sort of appeal to a broader audience. Have you found that uh, audiences for your films have been able to deal with that? Your sort of candor? Oh, you know, my, my films, like from day one, it, they polarize people. Uh, probably two thirds like it and one third doesn't like. Um, so yeah, my films are actually not, uh, for faint in heart. But this depression film, uh, The Rocks in My Pockets, I felt that it was less harsh, you know, because I, yeah, I go into, into it talking about my suicidal train of thoughts which probably is very jarring for a lot of people but then there is this gentler message there's a message of hope and redemption and uh, showing the ways of dealing with this affliction so i feel that if you get past that harshness that openness and frankness and there is a deeper message in there Mm -hmm. is it easier to convey that sort of positive side through the humor yeah, I mean, you know, uh, life is uh, life is complicated, life is terrible, and life is full of suffering, and if you just don't, I don't know, like, isn't laughter the best medicine? You know, like, you can treat a lot of diseases, and maybe depression is one of them. The, the humor is actually in everything that I do, but uh, humor is not what I set out to do. The comedy is not something that I'm thinking when I'm like conceiving the film. I'm like, I'm going to make this film about depression. Very, very funny. Yeah. I don't think that way. I just, I just tell the story and I tell it the best I can. And the humor is byproduct. I, it just what happens. I think when, it, when you go about it that way, it just comes off a lot more authentic and a lot more mm-hmm. um, believable. It's a really refreshing thing to see, and it's so much more emotionally mature than... Mm-hmm. I've, I mean, I've worked on some very misguided campaigns against quite serious issues where they will either present things in a very somber, uh, maudlin light, or they'll go completely the other way and try too hard to, like, force the humor in there. So yeah. it's nice to hear that it sort of flows with you. I, I don't think that's it's humor per se. It's the unexpectedness that makes people laugh because they don't expect to hear or I feel that life is very absurd and I kind of, I kind of relish the absurdity of things and events. And I don't know. It's that's how it happens. Yes. Hmm. I get the same sort of sense from uh, all these, these really amazing stories that you tell on the production journal. What would you say about this film and working on this film that saw you use the blog as like an outlet for those stories? I partly wrote the blog because I felt I never have worked in a feature film uh, before and it's such a long and involved process that I needed a little outlet where I had the satisfaction of telling the story and having kind of interaction with audience, you know? Yeah. 
so uh, that was yes, that was an outlet, I guess. So I could survive the three years of not connecting with an audience at all, which is very very hard. That was probably the hardest thing for me, as you know, person who has made fourteen short films. All of a sudden, I go into feature film. So I, at the blog kind of kept my sanity a little bit and and feeling also connected to other people yeah i'm very glad that you sort of did it because it really humanizes what it is you're mm -hmm. doing something that bill plimpton brought up was that you two have been sort of working on your films around the same time has working sort of with or alongside him helped as a motivational thing bill is an amazing a person, an amazing artist, and incredibly prolific animator. And he had set a golden standard for all independent animators. Uh -huh. um, we did not ever catch him up. Like I've seen people try to do the same thing what he does, and they miserably failed. It's a physical stamina combined with like his mental need or like emotional need to really do it and do more than anything else it has like he has that need when i used to work for bill um i used to color cells for his um films and he would like leave for you know overseas trip he would leave and then he would come back like a week later he would arrive at four o'clock in his studio at the end of the day he would drop his bags and immediately sit down at the table and start working yeah. I, if I come back from European trip, I arrive at five o'clock and I collapse in bed exhausted. So there is something in his being is completely different from other people. So nobody can do what he does. But he is a source of undying inspiration for everybody around him. Mm. He's also very generous with animators like me or like younger animators. He constantly organizes new shows like shows of, of uh, animated works and he invites young animators to show their works he searches for other people's work and he promotes other people's work which is amazing i agree it's a great attitude and i like when people are supportive of other artists because i found that with him he's always been vocal about people he admires and people he if has, he hasn't worked with directly has found to be inspirational himself I think he mentioned you in his book, it had sort of mentioned that uh, I think you came over sort of out of the blue. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I um, I came to New York from Latvia and uh, it was in 1996. I knew one person in New York and I had $300 in my pocket and that's all I had. So I was selling drawings on street and uh, on West Broadway for a while and so I, I really felt that I... I came from Latvia with like ambitions and, and desires to prove something and and here I was, I was getting nowhere and it was getting cold and I was going to die. So I decided to go back to Latvia and uh, before I went back to Latvia, I decided to call all the studios, uh, animation studios in New York and the first studio was on my list was Bill Plimpton studio. So I called him up and I said, hey, uh, I'm an animator from Latvia, would like to visit your studio. And he said, sure, come on over, bring your portfolio with you. So I brought my portfolio, uh, we met for an hour, he looked at my work and he said, you know, you're a very talented woman, do you want to work for me? Mm -hmm. And so that was, 
uh, the most amazing event for me. I, I call him my uh, American grandfather, uh, sorry, not grandfather, but godfather. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> because without him, I wouldn't be in New York. I, without him, I would have to go back to Latvia and I don't know what I would do there. So um, he really changed my life. But yes, I was the one who arrived. So mm. then 10 years later, I asked him, I said, oh, Bill, remember that I came over to your studio? And he said, yes. And I said, do you remember why you hired me? Because it, it was not clear to me. And he said to me, I have no idea. Because <laughs> he says, your work is so different from what I do. You, your approach is so different. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. Why I hired. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do a, like sort of feature work or was it short films or both? I started to work on A Married a Strange Person, and that was the big project, the feature project that I worked for two years. And after that, there were many, many shorts. You know how prolific Bill is, like, it's just like many shorts. Every six months, there was a short. So I worked on the shorts, and then I worked also on uh, Mutant Aliens. And and also on Hair High. And Hair High was the last one I worked for, for Bill. Um, and I went on to do other things. Mm-hmm. To sort of go back to your work a bit and the, the qualities, I think, that are sort of shared with you and Bill, but from a very sort of different perspective is the incorporation of like sexual themes. And something quite interesting you brought up uh, on the website is the notion that, contrary to belief, like sex apparently doesn't sell or at least it doesn't in the way one would think it might are there any sort of specific instances where you've tried and been met with resistance i don't know why like when bill plimpton does sex his sex sells (laughs) when i do sex it does not sell it just does not i don't know why but the films did very well in terms of festivals right i mean the audiences seem to engage with them don't they Oh yeah, the uh, a bit of sex uh, episodes uh, one to three went to Sundance, and then episodes eight to eleven went to uh, Berlin. Um, so uh, they were screened at more than two hundred film festivals, mm-hmm. uh, and really well in festivals. People love watching them. Um, it's just we can't cash in on them. <laughs> yeah. It also says on the uh, the website that there are fifty episodes planned. Are they done, or is it something you'd return to after the film? Uh, yeah, well, so we have 15, one, five episodes. Uh-huh. I have 50 more ideas for 50 more episodes. But the problem is funding, as, you know, producer decided to go and do other things. And so I'm left alone with this project. So I'm, I'm just waiting for the right moment. Um, but I am really keen on making a bit of sex feature film. So it's going to be like Thousand and One Nights, except it's going to be really hot. Uh-huh something i picked up on was that on the website you talk about how it's about a character called cynthia and i had seen the first couple and i had just assumed they were directly sort of autobiographical and then i saw some others which i guess are later on and they seem to tell one longer story but still in episodes and that one seemed to be more of the character and i mean is it all fiction or is it like a sort of compositive people you know Yes, it is a composite, because if I really launched into um, the true story, that story would be an hour long. So I have to, uh, since the, 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 the premise of the episode is one minute, imagine how what the layers and layers are stripped off, you know, on the events. And um, But mainly I choose to call the main character Cynthia was because the depiction of my mother was not really accurate. Uh, my mom is 
is an all right woman mm-hmm. and a bit of sex she comes off uh, as very uh like dressed in these like strange garbs and stuff but for me uh the mother in uh, a tidbit of sex is more uh, as the voice of the conservative voice uh the voice of the society that you hear sometimes in your head oh you shouldn't be doing this because what society would think so the mother is really not real mother it's that conservative part of society that tries to you to fit within the society's standards and so that's why uh i choose uh, uh to be in a character as a cynthia hmm. cool so going back to uh, uh rocks in my pockets first of all what's um the main thing you kind of hope to achieve once the film is out there like what's your sort of best case scenario for i guess a the audience response and and be how um how it then sort of progresses your career it's an interesting question because again i don't know what plans are till they happen <laughs> i didn't make this film to progress my career i made because I wanted to make it and because there is this story that wanted to be told uh, and it it just had to be told in, in this form. And of course, I choose the form partly also because it was a challenge for me to make a feature film. But I didn't really contemplate what how it would advance my career. What I really hope for the film is that it would make people laugh, that it, may, it would make people look and understand depression better. I feel that a lot of people who are depressed, and I'm one of them, I was hospitalized and, and diagnosed as manic depressive at age 22, and I've been struggling with it for all my life, and I found something that works for me. And I wanted to share my story, but the story is not preachy. It's not like telling you, well, this is the way to do, or this is the way not to do. It's just telling the story of how the events of my life unfolded, but also how the events of my four cousins unfolded. Um, I have four cousins who committed suicide. And I was one of them. I tried to commit suicide when I was 18. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was uh, on an impulse. And I'm lucky and happy that I survived. So I'm hoping that the story would resonate with a lot of people. We had two test screenings uh, and we showed the film to about 70 people. And some of them said that they never experienced depression before. They never seen anybody depressed. Uh, but now they understand what it means when people say depression. Mm. There was one person who said that um, he was never depressed, but his girlfriend was having constant suicidal thoughts. And now he understands what was she going through. And he understood that it was not his fault at all. Uh, which talks about too, like uh, uh, whose fault. It doesn't blame anybody. And you understand that there's nobody to blame. So that is my highest hope to connect with about 1 million people. Mm. That's vicious, right? What I would like 1 million people of this world to connect, to see uh, rocks in my pockets one way or the other and be affected by it in a positive way. So that's my ambition. I don't know how it would come through, how it would can happen, um, but it can happen. Mm-hmm. But part of it, a part of the plan, since I have this ambition to connect with people with such a wide audience, I think that's why I started Kickstarter campaign. That's one of the reasons 
why we started Kickstarter campaign to start to engage with people in this conversation. Yeah. The, the visual look of the film is really, I mean, very unique and very interesting. And it's sort of hard to determine just at sort of first glance, which is great to sort of see the sort of behind the scenes videos and stuff like that. But I love the idea of the constructed backdrops with the animation uh, on top of it. It's a good sort of testimony to how sometimes it is sort of better to just make things, put craft into things, because craft really kind of shines through. Was that another sort of accidental thing you sort of came into in terms of the look of the film, or was that kind of how you pictured it in your head? I kind of feel sheepish to admit again that, yes, the look was accidental. (laughs) I guess I take all the accidents and then incorporate them in a new work. What happened was in Italy, there is this very famous fashion designer. His name is Alberto Aspasi. He is a friend of a friend and somehow he saw my tea bit of sex. And he said, I would like you to come over to Milan and make a mural of your visual characters. Like, you know, but not sexual, but like, you know, like something for Christmas. So I came to Milan and uh, I had a joy on working in his store, making this mural. And one day he came to me and said, Signa, can you make paper mache sculptures? You know, I like the mural, but how about sculptures? I need to decorate my store with sculptures. And I said, sure, yeah, of course I can make sculptures. Although I had no idea what he, what it was, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know, never worked with paper mache in my life, right? And I thought if, if children can do paper mache, I can do them, right? So they brought me glue, they brought me lots of paper, Italian papers, and they said, okay, here, goodbye. And so horrified. I didn't know where you start. I don't, I had no idea. I was sweating and I really, I fucked it up the first one, but I kind of straightened it out. I made it too wet. It took about like four months for it to dry. (laughs) (laughs) I realized where I made the mistake and then I uh, corrected up. And I got better and better. And in the end, I made about 30 sculptures for Alberto Aspasi. And he at the end said, you know, Signa, I, I have to make, I have to ask you to stop because I can't make my stores into Signa Bauman museums. Hmm. So I stopped and I came back to New York and I said, hmm, I really like making these sculptures. I would like to incorporate them in my animation, but how do you do that? And so I was raking my brain for a few months and then I thought, I, okay, I make them as backgrounds. That was around the time when I started to write and I was writing uh, uh, Rocks in My Pockets. And I also didn't want to make another flat animation like uh, Tidbit of Sex because Tidbit of Sex is fine, it's flat, it's fast, but it only works as a one-minute episode. Um, for a feature film, you want the viewer's eye to linger and be catching onto something three-dimensional. You want to create a world that has the three-dimensionality in it. And I did not know how, how else to do it. So I started to do paper mache sets. I made forests, I made hills and buildings, and, and it was very, very exciting and thrilling. And also because uh, my animation has to be limited because I have limited funds. So I have to work very fast. So I, I can't really do like Disney, like everything on twos and ones. I have to do everything on fours. I have a lot of holds. So I had to have a lot of pans. And when you have a pan of the three-dimensional background, it looks interesting. And viewer's eye really has something to look at for a long time. 
So it seems that more and more people are now turning to Kickstarter and uh, similar crowdfunding sites to essentially bring the audience in on the process. And uh, I was wondering what your take has been on it so far. And do you feel it's a good fit for what you're doing? I kind of feel that uh, in the in the contemporary world in 2013, um, the this so-called crowdfunding is really a crucial part of actually not only funding but also of distribution because the distribution starts at this stage you by logging into kickstarter and by supporting a project let's say by supporting rocks in my pockets project for ten dollars you can get a a download i mean it's not free it's ten dollar download and of the film what, how else you would call it? It's distribution. I am already selling. It's a film's pre-sale, right? Yeah. I am already selling the film before it's even finished. And I am finishing the film only because I am able to sell the film before it's finished. Um, so I think it's a pretty groundbreaking concept and, and, and it's a new opportunity for independent filmmakers to kind of have control over this whole horrible process of financing and distribution. It's engaging audiences while the film is in making and committing the audiences. These are not just audiences, they're committed audiences who really are invested in seeing the film. I hope happens more. But anyway, that's my five cents on kickstarting. So that was Signe Bauman, director of Rocks in My Pockets. You can find out more about the film at rocksinmypocketsthemovie.wordpress.com and there's a link to both her and Bill Plimpton's Kickstarter campaigns on the podcast page. Uh, What you just heard was an excerpt from a much longer chat the two of us had that went into a lot of extra detail about some of her other work and her take on the industry and quite a few things that veer quite significantly outside of the usual squiggly podcast territory but at some point i'll be posting the full conversation online and putting up a link to it so keep your eyes and ears open for that because she has some very fascinating insights that i think are definitely worth sharing but yes in the meantime rocks in my pockets will be up on kickstarter until february 14th meanwhile bill plimpton's cheating campaign is up until the first so check them both out I'm sure that they don't need any more help as far as, you know, gathering the funds. But uh, as far as I can tell, it's something that I think a lot of people would be interested in. Yeah. And you get all this cool nifty shit in return. That's, that's you know, why I do it. <laughs> like, you know, I'm not completely nuts. I don't do it for entirely altruistic reasons. I like getting prizes. <laughs> I like getting treats. <laughs> yeah, we all do. So, yes, I wish both of them luck. We'll be hearing more from Bill Plimpton at the next podcast, uh, just chatting about all the other stuff he's been up to, because he does a lot in less than two years. It's a whole raft of extra stuff he's been working on. The guy doesn't mess around. <laughs> well, yeah, this is this is one of those uh, admirable things about Bill, is that is in, the man makes feature films on his own, and he still has time to run around festivals yeah. and travel the world, and then get short films made. Yeah. I mean... Does in man sleep? I mean, what? I can't fathom his schedule. <laughs> well, what I think it's demonstrative of, and this may not be a particularly popular thing to hear, but I, I think that if you have that drive to get up and animate and go to bed, and get up and animate and go to bed, 
not completely destroy your life because obviously you need to have time for your family and friends and stuff. But if you think of all the time people spend staring at their navels, mucking around on YouTube and not for the research purposes, but just to watch kittens being adorable just the the nonsense cycles we get through is like oh what's going on on twitter not much what's going on on facebook not much what's going on on linkedin not much and repeat for hours that's time that can be spent doing layouts doing in betweening doing keys doing whatever like it, and and the hours do accrue i think that he's just someone who is taking advantage of the time he has and the resources he has and the talent he has and while it doesn't bother me to see someone who will never necessarily... Like, so for someone who's who's fine to just kind of be, you know, oh, I like animation, I'll, I like being, you know, in-betweening, or I like being part of a crew, or I like, you know, doing production or whatever, that's fine. But when you know someone has that creative spark in them, that is the storyteller, that is the person who could take hold of something and, and make their own films or tell their own stories... That is what bothers me when they don't jump on it and they don't write it because they would be the people who would take over the world. Yeah. And uh, when you see someone who is so gifted in that way give up, it really is quite heartbreaking. And you can't communicate that to them without it seeming like you're being, I don't know, sanctimonious, which really isn't what it is. It's just a sadness of like, but she's or he is so good at when they when they apply themselves. So to link that back to Bill Plimpton, he has stayed motivated for decades now constantly he's made four more short films and a feature pretty much since i interviewed him less than two years ago yeah you know it's incredible he's probably he's probably done he did no he also he did those simpsons things yeah he's done two of those now i think he talks about the other one in the next bit but um and granted you know some of it's paid for and some of it's funded but i think a lot of it is done just for the passion of the storytelling. And then he makes the money back later when he's able to sell the films, if he's able to sell the films. I guess his trade-off is he, he he doesn't get rich from it, but that isn't what he wants. He wants to make cartoons. What would be the point of having, you know, millions of dollars and just sitting around all day? Yeah. There's no spiritual fulfillment. Yeah. If you live to your means and do something that makes you happy, that's the person who's made it. My theory. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, one that many of us can subscribe to. We'd like to thank Will Beecher from Ardman Animations, being interviewed by uh, Pete Gallagher there um, at the Bradford Animation Festival. Good luck at the Annies. Thanks very much to Bill Plimpton. You can find out more about his work at plimptoons.com and follow the production journal of Cheaton at scribblejunkies.blogspot.com. And also thanks to Plimptoon's producer, Desiree Stavrakos, who's always been very lovely and helpful. And of course, Signe Bauman. Check out her production journal, rocksinmypocketsthemovie.wordpress.com. It's very, very interesting reading. And there's also links to both Bill and Signe's Kickstarter campaigns on our podcast page. If you want to check those out and uh, shop for some animation rarities and paraphernalia. And so ends the first squiggly podcast of 2013. Presented by myself, Ben Mitchell, and Steve Henderson. Music by Wesley Allard and Ben Mitchell. Don't forget, for all the latest news, reviews, and interviews, you can visit squiggly.co.uk. Follow us on Twitter, at Squiggly, or follow us on Facebook. Just search Squiggly Online Animation Magazine. And we are still on iTunes. You can still subscribe. We're not going anywhere. 
Thanks a lot for listening to the Squiggly Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S Underscore Henderson. You can also follow Ben at Ben L. Mitchell. Also, you can find me online at ben-mitchell.co.uk and I'm still flogging my book, throatbook.com. If you haven't checked that out, give it a gander. Uh, This podcast has been edited and produced by Ben Mitchell. Until the next podcast, thank you very much. Bye-bye.